Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. With so much shifting in our world at the moment, I wanted to check in with an artist particularly adept at navigating shift. In a conversation spanning the theater of the ancient Greeks, the slave trade, and his work teaching theater as therapy to homeless folks, actor and writer Michael Mack contextualizes where we've been and where we could go from here. And he treats us to a Cervantes monologue, addressing our current situation as a failure of imagination. It's not about seeing life as what it is, but as what it could be. We're joined by my friend, medium writer, Trisha Nelson, who's the third voice you'll hear. You and I had started by talking about the history of theater as a context for social design from the ancient Greeks. Would you care to start there? Sure, I'd be happy to start there. And we have to actually start before there because, because, because you know, let's be real, let's be honest. The very first play on record, on historical record, was an Egyptian passion play about Osiris. Obviously, this is part of social programming. This is a god uplifted by the state, live by his edicts, and the state is better, right? Yeah. Just like every Christian passion play that we see, this is the idea, okay? And I'm not saying what's right and wrong, I'm just saying what is, right? Okay, so we know know more about the Greeks, okay? We know more about the Greeks. So Euripides, Sophocles, all these guys, okay? They were all priests in the cult or religion or temple or church, whatever word you want, of Dionysus. Why were they important? Why were they given this sanction? Because you had Greek rulers going, how do we govern people? on every level, just all, like all leaders of every nation are asking the same questions. Right? In ancient Greece, the basic idea became, how do you, through virtual experience, give people the experience of catharsis? I mean, remember, as you know, on Greek stage, ancient Greek stage, there was no violence depicted, but horrific violence was described in all the tragedies, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Where we get obscene, off, things that happen off stage were off-scene or obs- obscene. There you go. Exactly. Trish exactly. is getting some knowledge tonight. I know stuff. <laughs> all right, this is what it was, right? Yeah. And the idea was catharsis. 
And another word for catharsis, of course, in a priestly sense, in a religious sense, is exorcism. This was the idea. If you can get people to have these vicarious experiences, they won't have to actually do them. Mm -hmm. That was the doctrine. That was the thought. Whether or not it worked out factually. Okay. But, but theater, theater, the dramatic art, has always been associated with religion since its inception with the Egyptians, not the Greeks. Yeah, which I didn't know. Um, I guess either as a theater major, like I should have probably known that, but um, it, it just was one of those things somehow it never, even as much as we studied the ancient Greek plays um, and we put on- you could, you could never have known it before Google because it, it's like, it, it's one of those things. No, I'm, I'm serious, I'm serious. It's one of those things, it's like, oh, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's like we have traditions of teaching. Our institutions are not about unveiling the truth. They're about perpetuating the truths that help their existence. Mm -hmm. But it's not, but, but education, unfortunately, by itself is not a fact-finding mission. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that especially with what's happening right now, you know, this is why certain statues have been up for a very long time in order to keep those truths out, out there. And this is why, hey, wait a minute, why did none of us learn about the Tulsa race massacre in our schools? Because they're not, it's not in the textbooks. And it just like, then there's another generation who doesn't learn about it. And then there's another generation who doesn't learn about it. And suddenly it's like, some weird random fact that no one knew about except for the people who knew about it so i see your point who watched watchmen exactly that's in fact that i think that trish that's the first time i saw it and i was like what the what and i went back and like looked it up and i was like holy crap this is a real thing and so i'm outraged and then i'm outraged that i didn't know about it and then there's just all this like okay all right but what if you know, somebody shut that story idea down. A lot of people were against that story idea. And thank God it got made. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is part of the shift that we're starting to see now is who gets to tell stories and what stories do we want to hear? And I'm, I'm hoping we're at a sea change. Um, so, Michael, this is another thing I learned from you that we when we were speaking about this, I was wondering where the name Jim Crow came from because I just thought it was a term, and you said, no, no, it's a character. Please share. In a play, in a play, a minstrel show, okay? It was a white man. It started with a white man in blackface. Of course it did. Doing a one-man show. And it became... Well, I don't want him and his family living next to me. So let's go back. Let's go back to the Egyptians. Let's go back to the Greeks. Theater is not mere entertainment. It is social policy. 
okay? Mm-hmm. It is social policy. Here are laws named after a character in a one-man show. Yeah. I had always assumed okay. it was the name of some politician or some guy that came up with this design. And that's what I thought I thought it came from. I had no idea. But the one-man show becomes the way to perceive an entire people. And if people want to be involved in this thing called theater and later film, you have to abide by the rules of the one-man show. You Can with I me? So there's the perpetuation of the stereotypes. Yes, Trisha, please. Um, just as an aside, I don't know if everybody's listened to the 1619 podcast from the New York Times, but there's an excellent one about music and yacht rock in particular. And they go into Jim Crow and, you know, to digress, you know, yacht rock is really black music and black music is pretty much the foundation of American music. Of course. Um, but, you know, it goes into detail. It's pretty interesting. And well, they go bear, to Jim Crow. Bear with me for a moment. Bear with me for a moment. Okay. There's this wonderful uh, line in the play Amadeus. Music is absolute. One note of music is right or wrong absolutely. Okay. It is this thing. It's like, can you fly from the top of the key and slam dunk a basketball or not? It's absolute. It's not open to interpretation. It is absolute. And if you can do these incredible absolute things, then what's happened is absolutely extraordinary and beyond any criticism. But let's get back to theater. Let's get back to acting. Let's get back to humanity. You are correct. Ken Burns agrees with you, Tricia, that all American music came from black people. Ken Burns says that in more than one documentary. But you know what? If you can blow a saxophone, if you can play a piano, I still don't have to deal with who you are as a human being. If you can leap from half court and dunk a basketball, I still don't have to deal with who you are as a human being. But that's not what the dramatic art is about. The dramatic art is about who you are as a human being. I pro- this, is, this is my thing. Once we as a people, by and large, say no to the stereotypes, stop calling them black culture, acknowledge them for what they are. White men made this stuff up. Uh, Heidi, you and I were talking earlier about the triangle. Yes. Right? Or the slave trade, okay? You got captured in Africa. Before you went to America, 
you were stopped in the West Indies. But what happened in the West Indies, if you were an African slave who survived the Middle Passage, seasoning. This is how you are to talk. This is how you are to walk. This is how you are to carry yourself. This is how you are to address your master. It was called seasoning. That was the middle stop for the slave. Here is what is expected of you when you get to America. Do you hear me? Mm -hmm. So, so much of what gets called black culture really is not. Okay? I mean, I can remember when Aunt Jemima was called black culture. And I always fought against it. I can remember when Uncle Ben's was called black culture. I always fought against it. I can name tons of plays which I will not name because they're sacred cows. But when I, when I went to college for the first time, when I, when I became a college dropout, okay, was being at a historically black college and saying, why am I in a college to learn how to play their stereotypes of us? And they said, well, Michael, people like this live. And I said, so do other black people. Okay, so, you know, so why is it only this? I'm a beat your ass. I'm a, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> How does this become my culture? My, my mother and father were teachers. And they were, they were born in Whiteville, North Carolina. Whiteville is so small, it doesn't exist on many maps. Mm -hmm. My mom found her way to Boston University. My dad volunteered for World War II, okay, and got his college education. They were so successful in 1972 that they bought a house. We integrated a neighborhood. Wow. Without begging anybody for anything. So how come this other, how, how is all this other stuff, the signature of black culture? I've never understood it. Frederick Douglass always learned all he could and presented himself the best that he could. Nat Turner did. Martin Luther King did. Martin Luther King, <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people don't know this, but when Dr. King took his stand, well, <laughs> there were many stands he took that were not popular with the standard traditional Southern Baptist Church. He, and he was kicked out of it. He had to start his own Baptist denomination. A lot of people don't know that. 
I did not know that. And all how like Luther also. Right. I mean, what I'm saying is when you really, when you really, and I'm not saying that you're not, I'm just, I'm just saying my own experience. When you really get invested, see, I know my Kunta Kinte. Okay. I know my Kunta Kinte. My mother's grandfather was a slave that hell of the middle passage he survived at 11 years old i do not know his african name i do know his american name okay and i I mean i never met him but what i'm saying is what i'm saying in my view what characterizes black culture is that we can survive that hell and every industry in which we get half of a fair chance we take over we're that good we are we're that good we're that good we're that good i'm i'm looking for a crack like this in entertainment industry i mean i'm saying in the dramatic art right right i i can't sing like michael jackson you know, I can't dance like Michael Jackson, okay? But I tell you what, I can act, write, and direct as well as anybody. Give me that much of a crack. Yes. And the world will know it. You were telling me about Septimus Severus. Yes. Which was news to me. Because uh, we were and, talking about and, the roots of prejudice and the roots of racism. Well, and, and forgive me because um, that's how his name is spelled. It's, it's actually pronounced Septimius. Oh, sorry. Severus, okay. And uh, yes, he was the first African emperor of Rome. I mean, the, the idea in this country, we talk black and white as if White people have done everything that could ever possibly have been done. And black people were born 400 years ago to be slaves. Right. You know, like there was nothing, there was no pre-slavery existence of black people, right? And we also often talk about racism as if it's human nature. It is not, it was a construction. If you go back to ancient history, go back anywhere before a thousand years ago, go back to ancient Rome. Rome cared about your culture. They cared nothing about your color. Rome was the first America. This country was inspired by Rome. Rome was the inspiration for this nation. That's why you see this Greco-Roman architecture all around Washington, D.C., and you have uh, plazas you know, that look like Roman plazas. Well, they're, they're patterned after them for a reason, okay? In Rome, you could start out as a slave and wind up 
whatever you want it to be. Doesn't mean everybody got that deal. Doesn't mean everybody understood the deal, okay? But Rome didn't give a damn about your color. They cared about your culture. And that was the big thing with the ancient Hebrews, you know? We have gods. We'll accept your God. But what's this deal that you can only believe in one God? <laughs> that was the conflict. Yeah. That was it. That was the conflict with the Hebrews. That was the conflict with the Christians who would uh, follow in that, uh, you know, in that tradition. Okay, so let's get back to Septimius Severus. He was born in Africa. He was Rome's first African emperor thousands of years before Barack Obama. <laughs> he was the Obama of his day. He was... It's astonishing to Rome me. ruled the known world, and he ruled Rome. He was bigger <laughs> than Obama, uh, whom I love, and you know that. Yes. Um, and if you, if you can... I don't know if you, uh, like in your research, if you, if you came upon that sort of family portrait and you could see that in that portrait, you know, he was the darkest person in that portrait. Okay, it's a very famous family portrait. I have, an, I, I have that in my Martin Luther King documentary called The Drum Major. I, I use that, 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 uh, that, that still... Um, Yes, he was Rome's first, at first, not only, African emperor. And, you know, there are many historians who want to say, well, you, you know, he was a Roman citizen born in Africa. There's no reason to believe that he was Moorish. There was no reason to believe he was not, particularly when you see the earliest portraits of him, the earliest portraits of him. Okay. Um, he was black. It gives me hope in, in a lot of ways, even though it's past and quite past. So if racism is anywhere you want to go, then, like, you know, the, the, obviously that's a construct um, for oppression, which is uh, what we're living. There is a book, which I find to be an excellent book, called A Brief History of Racism. I mean, Brief history of race or racism, I can't remember. Um, forgive me. According to this author, racism as we know it is only a thousand years old. Hmm. Now, what is racism as we know it? Racism as we know it is, right? I mean, why the Tulsa riots, okay? of young black man, <clears throat> a teenage boy, is accused of inappropriately touching a teenage girl who's white. Now the whole community has to die for it. I mean, there's no sense of a fair trial. There's no sense of, you know, justice, a fair hearing. Okay. The decision is he's no good 
and anyone who looks like him is no good. Right? Yeah. So according to this book, okay, the first act of racism, as we know it, happened a thousand years ago with the first crusade. Hmm. When the European crusaders came into Palestine, came face to face with Palestinian Jews and said, you are Judas. See, you're the same as the guy who betrayed Jesus, so you have to die. Of course, ignoring that Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. You know, ignoring that, of course. But there it is. It's like the idea that this is irretrievable, that this cannot be changed, that this cannot be fixed is insane. It is insane. We have been on this planet, multicultural, interracial, cooperative, uh, mostly through trade, longer than we've been oh, polarized. This oh. is the, the idea of surrendering, surrendering to, to white American racism is the most insane proposition I've ever heard of. Yes, it is. And that's one of the things that is kind of giving me hope at the moment is that I feel like a lot of people are starting to wake up and realize this is, this is insane. Um, this is a construct. What are we doing? You know, and I'm still having a lot of those difficult conversations. Like I told you about earlier, one friend was like, well, but black people sold each other into slavery in Africa. So, I mean, they did it to themselves. Like, Can I address oh, that? Yes, please. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it was kind of like, it was like, is that my cue or would you mind? <laughs> One of those, like, I was so stunned that that's what would have been said back to me in the face, instead of like, oh my gosh, you're right. This is terrible. Like that that's what came back to me that I was like, are, you understand you're on the wrong side of history, right? By saying that to me, like it was just, it's astonishing. Let's erase all doubt right now. Most of the conflicts that happen in human history are not because of difference or otherness. Actually, they're because of sameness, okay? So in order to set this up and, and to communicate this properly, for your audience, not only your live audience, but your audience that's, you know, this is going to live forever, right, on, on the internet. Let's set this up properly. Let's go back to white-owned white crime, first of all. Okay? Let's go back to the Normans and the Saxons. So, William the Conqueror comes into a place that is owned by other white folk. And he says, ah, but I want to own it. I want my white folk to own it. Not your white folk, my white folk. Okay, so the Normans conquered the Saxons. There's a big problem with that though. 
the Saxons know the land better than the Normans do. The Saxons look like the Normans. They share a common religion. And it's not hard to figure out the traditions. You can be a Saxon, walk into a Norman situation, disguised as a Norman, just by putting on a, uh, just by putting on a monk's cloak and kill people. You know, and it, I mean, one of the wonderful, I mean, dramatic portrayals of this is the film Beckett. You know, we're Beckett. Well, who is Beckett? Beckett is Beckett is a Saxon who's been promoted by the Normans. So the Saxons see Beckett as an Uncle Tom. And so he's got a servant who's a Saxon and attacks him with a knife. You've betrayed our people. Okay. I mean, that's, that's just a small example of a greater dilemma. So coming to how does this fit with Africa and America and slavery? Columbus put in his diary, the day that he landed in the Americas, he took slaves. That's in his diary. That's a fact of history. However, you enslave the Native Americans. They know the landscape. They know the languages. They look like everybody else. They can blend into society. They can come back and attack you, just like the little Saxon monk who came to Beckett with a knife. Mm-hmm. Same deal. What happened? A Roman Catholic priest by the name of Bartolome Las Casas said, history nails this down to one person. Wow. A Roman Catholic priest said, for slavery to work in the Americas, what we need is a people who don't look like anyone here, who do not know any of these languages and who do not know the terrain and who will be completely dependent upon the slaveholder, we must go to Africa. That came from the Catholic Church. Came from the church. Came from a priest. Wow. So what happened when they went to Africa? Otherness, is that why it was so easy? I'm not saying it was easy, but I'm saying uh, to whatever degree there was simplicity. You know, if, if you see, if you see the uh, miniseries Shaka Zulu, which was produced by the South African government and broadcast on Fox back, I mean, like 20, 30 years ago. I remember. Okay. All right. If you take a look at that, well, but you have to understand 30 years ago, I mean, that was the most blackness we got on TV since Roots. Yeah. Okay? I mean, I was alive. <laughs> I'm older than you. All right. But I noticed even then the problem 
Here the white slavers come in to the village of the fearsome Shaka Zulu. They open up a music box and he goes, so he's just gonna give them whatever he want, whatever they want. This is insane. Obviously it was nothing like that. What happened was the slave traders got to Africa and what they saw was the Normans and the Saxons. Mm. They saw what they knew, not otherness, sameness. Here is a king trying to protect his people. Who does he have in prison? People who look like his people, know the language of his people, know the terrain, how to come back. Because Africa, in, in, in the context of slavery, Africa is not a country. It is a continent with 53 different nations that got involved in the slave trade. 53 different nations. Okay? So what they would do is go from king to king. Hey, you don't want to be a butcher and slaughter these people that you got in prison, do you? No, I don't. Got an idea for you, King. We don't want to butcher them either. I can take your enemies where they will never harm your people again. So when you think about the degree to which Africans participated in the slave trade, it is useful only if you understand that these are nations. You can't say Africa is a monolith. No. Any more than you can say Europe is a monolith. Any more than you can say white is a monolith. Okay? In the same way that white America said white Germany we must make war with. In the same way that the Saxons and the Normans had their problems. In the same way that the British and the Irish have their problems. That's how Africa must be seen. These aren't a handful that can be discussed right now in two minutes. This is 53 nations. That's how it happened. Not because of otherness, because of sameness is how it happened. Which is fascinating. Um, So then to take that and bring you into this world of you've been ministering since you were little, you come back from LA, you're working with kids, um, and you start to work on reimagining the self and circumstances of these kids through theater. Tell me about it. My, my, my family integrated a neighborhood in 1972. I was 10 years old. You can imagine, right? One day, this little old Irish lady came into social studies class, which was the only class that I liked, by the way. So I mean, I had these dark circles under my eyes. I couldn't sleep. I, you know, I mean, life was horrible. Okay, I didn't. You know, 
I don't want to live around white people, ma. You know, I mean, that, that's what I was saying. Why the hell did you bring us here, right? And here was this little Irish lady who, who you know, waddles into this social studies class. And she says, we're going to do this thing called creative dramatics. I was so disgusted that I, I, I went to the, the furthest corner in the back of the room. Did that work? For a moment. <laughs> creative dramatics began with all the usual white kids who were the most popular. And then she pointed to that corner and said, I want you to try this. I did. Uh, forgive me because I'm about to cry. It changed my whole life. Aww. It changed my whole life. Um, it enabled others to see me as something other than a color that they didn't like. And it was in that moment that I knew that I had a tool. Outreach ministry with my parents, they had their own outreach ministry. I, I, I was with that when I was eight years old. It had nothing to do with the arts. When I felt this sense of calling to leave LA and come back to outreach ministry in the Washington, D.C. area, I wasn't sure how to get into it. I really wasn't. Um, I had heard about uh, this church, this Episcopal church, in the DuPont Circle area of DC, which at that time was very diverse, kind of funky, really, I mean, really interesting, okay? And that they had this room called the Forum Room. It was available for rent. How very Roman. So I rented this room. So I said, okay, I'm gonna start coaching actors here because I thought I would coach actors who want to be professionals, make enough money to go back to LA. That's what I thought. Good. You know, I was like, this ministry thing is you know, for the birds. This is crazy. This ain't working. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm done. You know, God doesn't give a damn about me. Why should I care? Right. I mean, you know, I'm going back. And it started with one person. It grew into 20 regular students. It grew into workshops on Saturdays. And also during the week, it was acting workshops, writing workshops, improv workshops. It was working. And one day, the church administrator came to me and he said, Michael, I hear your students when they leave your workshops. They say they came to learn about being actors and they walk away learning about acting, writing, the dramatic arts and their lives. Can you do that with homeless people? And I went, my God, it's what I came back to do. <laughs> it took two years, but my God, it's what I came back to do. So then I started working with homeless people, acting as a life tool. And uh, 
I was asked by the staff. I mean, remember, I'm walking into a situation, walking to a, uh, I'm walking into a homeless program that's already staffed. I'm the new guy. Okay. My first staff meeting was, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Wonderful to have you here. Oh, yeah, I saw you on Star Trek. Oh, I saw you on this. I saw you on that. You know, isn't it so great that you're here? What are you going to do with them? And I said, well, I'm going to eat with them because nobody else ate with them. The teachers didn't eat with them. The staff didn't eat with them. I said, I'm going to eat with them. I'm going to eat what they eat. See, the breakfast program is why they came. First of all, the classes are, you know, icing on the cake. The cake is the breakfast food. And there were people who ran that program who would come in with food purchased elsewhere, restaurant food, boutique food, uh, exquisite food. And they would have tables away from the homeless folk and eat their gourmet food as the homeless folk ate what was served by the program that they run. I said, what I'm going to do is eat with them. That's first. Talk with them. Understand who they are. Get to know their stories. Get to know what their ambitions are. And no matter what I learn from that, if there is a play that we're going to focus on, it'll be Man of La Mancha. Oh. <laughs> Why that? Don't you think we need something closer to their culture? So there were more in Spain. Michael, um, I said, listen, you know, and they named certain plays, which I'm not going to name. We know them. We've seen them. Yes. Okay. Many of them are called black classics in which the black man is always a no good fill in the blank. I said, listen, they already know that. That's not going to do anything. Yeah, it's not going to bring anything new to their lives. What I want is transformation. So we're going to do, we'll do improv, we'll do all kinds of acting exercises and warm up and blah, blah, blah. But they're there for the food first and foremost. Sure. Okay, who would stay for the classes would always change up. If I can get a focus on one project, it's going to be Man of La Mancha. And that's it. There were a couple of observers one was a guy with a blanket, an adult, a young adult with a blanket, always on over his shoulder. And when he wasn't eating, thumb in his mouth, and he never spoke to anybody. He was in the program for years. Okay? In the program for years, and I was told that he never said a word to anyone. Like, when he went to get his food, he wouldn't even say thank you, which is not. He never spoke to anybody. They didn't know if he could speak. Okay? 
So remember the thumb sucker, all right? There was another guy that was in the program who would just watch, watch, watch. There were men and women who participated here and there and so on, but there were two guys that approached it religiously. They were brothers, I mean biologically. Their mother had died. Mom hadn't set up, you know, where to go from here. So when mom died, boom, they were on the strings. And I said, okay, I got it. These are my two regulars. And and uh, we started reading Man of La Mancha, and it became very clear who was Don Quixote and who was Sancho Panza. And what that entire motif, that, that world, okay, we were able to do scenes and monologues and discuss them in connection with life so that they started to see life as less of a burden and more of an adventure. That was when some in the mouth guy said, can you please work with me? I would like to do Shakespeare. <laughs> I kid you not. I kid you not. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, on the inside, I mean, you can't express it, but it's, I would like to do Shakespeare. Yep, sure. Okay. I said, cool. Okay. You let me know. You know, I, he had his characters picked out. He knew. He knew Hamlet and Macbeth and Othello, and he knew them all. Wow. The guy finally spoke. What he wanted to do was Shakespeare. Back to Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. One day, they come into the class happier than anybody's ever seen them. They said, we have an announcement to make. I mean, these guys who mumbled before, right? We have an announcement to make. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat like everybody else, right? Well, here's what we did on yesterday. <laughs> we sallied forth. <laughs> and we did find it ourselves jobs <laughs> and they got off hopelessness by seeing it as an adventure by reimagining it you hear people talk about reimagining all the time you hear about it on the news all the time but I'm telling you it is important it is necessary it is what must happen. We must reimagine police work. You know why we have to do that? Do you know how police departments started? Yes. They were patrols to bring back runaway slaves. Right, as slave patrollers, exactly. Right, and the slaves in their own dialect, many of them shortened it to patty rollers. Okay, that's how the police department started. We must now reimagine. They must re reimagine. We must reimagine. Without our reimagining, how can we bring it to our Congress? How can we bring it to our Senate? We have to. 
I don't know how many times you write your congressman, but let me tell you something. They hear from me about three times a month. Okay. I'm not kidding you. And this has been true for a couple of years now. Okay. We have to reimagine the dramatic arts. No matter who you love right now on stage and screen, you have to understand that happened in a context that says the most reliable work for black people is stereotypes. That happened in a context of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben being sacrosanct. Last week, Durga talked about the only roles she could get were prostitute, sassy prostitute, jail, girl in jail, or angry black woman. Those are the only roles she could get. When I was in Los Angeles, I would do uh, workshops of major casting directors. And I remember one time I, I said to this woman who, who uh, said she was casting this uh, uh, Joan of Arc thing or you know, something, something Middle Ages. I said, you know, I've done a lot of Shakespeare and there were black people in Europe during that time. Can I get an audition? No, the producers won't let me. But at the same time, Casting directors of the same ilk will say, we didn't tell uh, the black actors to show up with their pants hanging halfway down their butts. And we didn't tell the Latino actors to show up with switchblades. They just chose it upon themselves. But the thing is, they see what you put on the screen. We have to reimagine some some of our black and latino filmmakers have to reimagine what deserves to be on a screen we're participants in this there's some ways in which i hate that i left hollywood and there are other ways in which it's like i get myself you know like like i understand me okay because you can't do it all inside the system. Sometimes you have to agitate from without. Yeah. I made a documentary about Martin Luther King that got the attention of Amnesty International. And I also taught a group of at-risk youth who made a film that got the attention of Amnesty International. And their audience was bigger than mine. Wow. <laughs> Not ashamed to say that. Their audience was bigger than mine. They became role models for their neighborhood. I remember when Roots happened. This is it. Here's the game changer. Well, LeVar Burton and a handful of people that were in Roots became big and huge and, and so on. But it didn't change things. Color Purple came out. Well, Whoopi and a couple of other folks became huge, but it didn't change things. Black Panther comes out. Oh, it's like, oh here's, here's, here's the game changer. That's it, that's it, that's it. Well, you know, and then get out. Now, here's my point. We need Black Panther. 
We need get app. We need your surfer, your surfer movie. We need my full confession movie. We need you. It's like it has to keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. So whatever that room is, it fills the room and it fills the windowsill so that the window can't close. Yes, yes. it can't look away. That's what we need. Well, we find the way to do that. Yes. And I think that's, I mean, that's the thing is flooding, flooding the market with black voices. Flooding the market with voices that are telling the human story in ways that are real, in ways that are balanced, okay? I mean, there are some black voices. There are a lot of black voices. (laughs) That right now have too much attention. Because all they're doing is singing Jim Crow. Yeah. My my partner in the surfer girl thing was saying the other day, she's like, there's only the same... You know, the same few people keep getting all the all the doors opened. It's like you were saying, like, sure, Whoopi, get all the doors open at that point after Color Purple. I have a specific point of view about this, too, and that's why I wrote I'd like to hear it. Um, I was so, you know, like, after this whole thing blew up and we see everybody's trying to have solidarity with the Black community, we see you turn on Netflix, here's some Black films. Or Amazon, here's some black films. Well, what were the black films? A slave narrative. Uh, you know, somebody being terrorized. I'm like, can I just see a love story with a black woman? It just has her being doing stupid like white women get to do, like a whole movie about like how she lost her dog that has nothing to do with oppression or that's why I wrote those two pieces, because I had to go back. I'm like, I'm sick of this. I yeah. wanna find stories where it's just like human fun. And Wait. most of the movies on my list were from like the 70s. Right. Waiting to exhale wasn't enough? You need more? And I mean like, and then when people decide, okay, we like these voices. Whoopi Goldberg was a ghost, so how come you're not satisfied with that? Well, no, she was because I have tropes too. She was a magical Negro in that. <laughs> so we can't like, you know, like if it's a biopic or if it's a slave narrative, it's, if it's a terrorism narrative, if it's, you know, like that we take those out. I don't want to. I love Molly, you and Danger Girl, but she was a magical Negro. And the thing is, like, you decide, they decide they like these voices. So now Kenya Barris gets to tell his story five freaking different ways. I don't care about Kenya. I like it as blackish. I don't want it the five different ways he's going to tell the same story of his life. I want somebody else's story. Well, that's what, what was, that's what was funny about my friend is she, she texts me this, you know, we were talking about people we could involve in our surfer girl thing. And she goes, and I brought up a name and she goes, Oh, that's just, you don't understand. That's somebody who gets all the doors are already open for her. And it's, she's one of three people. And I was like, Bob, but she's great. And blah, blah, blah. And literally the next, like an hour later, some news broke that she's got a new show or she's got this. And she's like, see what I mean? And I was like, Oh crap, you're right. In terms of your intent, I agree with both of you. I mean, wholeheartedly. And, and I would also say, I, I, I think that some stories need to be retold. I, I think that there are some slave stories. Some stories about enslaved people 
that need to be retold because they have been told as not being about their heroism, their ability, their creative thinking, their ability to creative, creatively problem solve, their ability to create solutions, okay? Those stories have been told as being about the white people who helped them. Oh God, I just watched another, I'm, I'm helping to curate a film festival for my university online. And so one of our alums is involved with a movie. I said, okay, I'll, I'll watch it to try to come up with some programming. So I watched Marshall last Thursday and it's ostensibly about Thurgood Marshall who was, oh my God, a Supreme Court justice. And you know, there's just so much interesting stuff about him. But literally they chose this little part of his career where he was pretty much just like Kane from Kung Fu. He, he rolled in and he helped Josh Gad find his voice and then he rolled out. Like, we don't even know what he did for fun. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the Thurgood Marshall movie. And it's the same thing with these narratives of enslaved people. It's told from a specific point of view. I agree they can be told over and over. How many different ways have we gotten Holocaust narratives? And they all are enlightening in a, in a different way. We can tell slave narratives the same way, but, but we've got to have, have the right people writing them and producing them. We have to do it from the perspective of, and forgive me if this sounds vain, and I'm sorry if it sounds vain, okay? I was working for this particular nonprofit to which my work brought them national attention. And the founder of the nonprofit said to me, how the hell do you do this? I said, you have to have a certain mindset, which says all people are of absolutely equal worth, regardless of current circumstances. She said, I can't do that. I said, that's why you can't get my results. Look at what our people have done. Look at what Frederick Douglass became. Look at what Nat Turner did. Look at what Madam C.J. Walker did. I mean, these were people, there was no roadmap. Okay, just because you held them down with slavery or Jim Crow laws didn't mean that they didn't have it in them and couldn't do it. Do you see what I'm saying? So our stories told properly would be like life lessons really to the whole world. You never know who you're talking to. You might be talking to the person who puts people on Mars or Venus, for goodness sake. You never know. They might be the person that God chose for this till you rape and kill them. Then what can they do once they're dead? Right? You have to respect all life. Black lives matter. We matter. We matter. I'm sorry to put it this way, but it's true. And here's the best way I could put it, really, to make the point. If someone had lynched a young Chuck Berry, you wouldn't have Elvis Presley, the Beatles. You wouldn't have rock and roll. <laughs> you wouldn't. He started it. 
So says the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was the guy who founded it. He's the guy who started it. Kill him over some nonsense. You wouldn't have rock and roll. Now look at how much money that has made all over the world. You got to treat people with love and respect. We all have the right to live, all have the right to be loved and respected and the freedom to be who we need to be to make our contribution to this thing called life. So if, if we are to go forth and reimagine things, reimagine this, reimagine ourselves, reimagine what is possible, what what else like what would you have how would you have us do that what would you like what are your sort of like here's what i send you forth with oh (laughs) really here's what i send you forth with yes bring the sermon home let me do my best actually here's the sermon from man of la mancha Uh, Would you, Heidi, please say, oh, just see life as it is. Please say that. Oh, just see life as it is. Life as it is. I lived for nearly 50 years and I've seen life as it is. Pain, misery, cruelty beyond belief. I've heard all the cries of God's noblest creatures. From the singing in the taverns to the bundles of filth in the streets, I have been a soldier and his slave. I've watched my comrades fall in battle or die more slowly under the lash in Africa. These are men who saw life as it is, and they died despairing. No brave last words, no glory. Only their eyes whimpering the question, why? And I don't think they were asking why they were dying, but why they had ever lived when life itself seems lunatic. Who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical as madness, to surrender dreams. This may be madness. To surrender treasure where there's only trash, too much sanity may be madness but maddest of all to see life as it is and not as it should be there's my benediction (laughs) there ended the lesson (laughs) but i mean but i mean it's it there it is Yeah. Cervantes, the real man, he faced the Inquisition and won. A soldier, a soldier slave, beat the Inquisition. Why? Always holding in his mind what life should be. And that's what we have to do now. Beautiful. Michael, I love and adore you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing. And to you, Trisha. I'm not blowing a kiss to your dog. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll blow a kiss to you. (laughs) You guys are great. 
I thank you so much for a wonderful evening. Thank you for indulging me, allowing me to share. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Next time on Heartside Salons. Monia Ayachi understands being between worlds. This Belgian-Tunisian actress, singer, and writer grew up in Brussels, working in English, Dutch, Arabic, Spanish, Portuguese, and French. She moved to LA chasing a dream like so many of us and landed recurring roles on Days of Our Lives and General Hospital. She's best known as Anaïs Fontaine on Wolfenstein Youngblood. Her work as a writer-director challenges cultural, religious, gender, and generational stereotypes and invites us to open our eyes. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online Concept to Pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.